Um, okay, moving on. Best supporting Best. actress. Stella I Parsons. Bro- was the original? Was this the? Um, oh yeah. I broke IRL the rules. winner. Estelle Parsons. For I broke the rules for this, and I said, if this were 2020, Catherine Hepburn would not, from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, True. would not have st- her agents would not have allowed her to be stuck in Best Actress and therefore not get a chance to win. They would have Viola Davis her and put her in Best Supporting Actress so she could kick butt. So I applied 2020 rules, you know, the rules that have what's-his-name from Whiplash winning Best Supporting Actor when he is half of that movie. Mm, yeah, J.K. Simmons. Um, J.K. Simmons. <laughs> I applied 2020 to rules and said that it's Katherine Hepburn. You can so call weird. it cheating, but I did it. Special shout out to Patty Duke in Valley of the Dolls for a yeah, barn burner like, of a performance. Right, but I think that's a that's a lead that's a lead role. Yeah, that's a lead that's a lead role. I'm sorry. I would have, yeah, if, if you could if you could convince me that that was supporting, she'd be my pick. Catherine uh, Ross is underrated in The Graduate. Is she? She Fun is to, to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Taking me back to AP class after we yeah, finished Catherine the exam. Yeah, Catherine, sorry. Some people might be already, and you could tell me if, like, do either of you have Catherine Hepburn for Best Actress? No. Or I don't, I'll say. Uh, I don't know yet. Well, she's fabulous in that movie. She's you, fucking amazing. You watch her face, and it's a great face, and you just, like, her affection for all of the people. Like, you, I just have never felt someone show so much affection like you i don't know for her family like you just like it's not even the reactions that i look for it's just like her the care that she takes with that role is so serious she like really likes the character so much and gives it so much respect and then uh but also she yeah i don't know you just feel how much she loves her daughter you feel how much, I mean, it's very like, it's so funny watching Father of the Bride last night. It, there is like vibes of the Nina performance from mm. what's her name? Yeah, she's great. And, and I know, yeah, but Diane Keaton, we've watched Diane like Keaton. 10 Diane Keaton movies lately. We've watched so much Diane Keaton. She's recently. great. So anyway, she's just so good. And she holds that movie together. And the way that she sort of is like kind of the diplomat of that movie is so good. I think if I were to say any issue with that movie, I think that the movie gives a little bit too much triumph to her firing that assistant. Um, the super early. And to Spencer one. Tracy. Yeah. Oh yeah. And to Spencer Tracy. And to but Spencer Tracy. Yeah. I feel like that's the more obvious criticism, but like, yeah, they, they, it's a very sort of like notorious Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> like, like, like she's supposed to be some sort of like champion of the left. Cause she like, cause she told off her employee for being racist. Um, And it's a little like, okay, Catherine Hepburn, let's wait until your boss is racist. I mean, I know you own the gallery or whatever, but wait until like someone who's not, who's above you is racist, not someone who is below you. Um, So I like don't love that, but that's not her fault. And it's like, she eats up that moment in a very satisfying way. It's fun to watch her do it. And yeah, her conversation with um, the woman who plays Sidney Poitier's mother is also very excellent. Oh, so good. B. Richards. Yeah. B. Richards? B. something. I think B. Richards. It's also very good. Very entertaining. Um, And like, well done. And I I love that like Catherine Hepburn as an actress 
you can tell just like, you know, in dealing with someone like Spencer Tracy or someone like B. Richards, you know, obviously very different perceptions of them in the industry sort of holds them both as scene partners equally in a very good way. She's so good in that movie. So that's why she's my person. Basically, I was very struck with her physical performance, how Mm. she moves around. I know at one point they're on the porch and she kind of like drifts over and sits on the edge of a, like the, the um, shoulder of a chair that I think her daughter's like the way she expresses love and is kind of like admits the frequency she's on uh, also kind of echoes her more like it's she's very kind of like wavy and not in a 60s way but kind of in like a liberal compared to conservative like her body movement is very different than in other performances i've seen with her when she's young yeah there's kind of like a little bit more sharp elbowed and um exactly yeah and i think that's what that's why i was so so surprised and impressed with it because it's so different than kind of kind of like straight lace the philadelphia story philadelphia story exactly it's a Um, very different like she has a very different like she's very swaggering in all of her roles mm -hmm. but it's like a very different kind of swagger it's like softer and more um i don't know swaying (laughs) yeah and like confident host um also she projected that very well yeah i mean she steals that movie for me um Especially because I, I think the, the the turn that Spencer Tracy does, I don't think it's necessarily his fault, but it's the it's the way that a script works. I don't I didn't love the the him getting angry. I liked it more when he was kind of a little more bubbling bumbling at the beginning. Yeah. Um as a yeah. character. But you're totally right. The way that the characters interact with the physical space in that movie is so important. Like both Spencer, Tra- like there are three people in that house who act like they own the house. You know what I mean? And like both and Catherine Hepburn. Well, and her four, if you count Ms. Monsignor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this like, there's mm-hmm. this like phys- physical way of showing comfort and ownership in that space that's very well thought out. And they both, then all of them do it very well, I think. Um, and like the way, you know, the daughter sort of bops around the house and the way the dad kind of settles into it and the way that like Catherine Hepburn is often like, sitting on like odd things like on various yeah. chair sides and things like that and you know obviously Sidney Poitier they, they don't just rely on his race to show his discomfort like he's interacting with the physical space so differently and that's very smart feels very play-ish good pick for me we'll probably <laughs> talk we'll talk more about that movie later um what, who is your your supporting actress, Andy? Was um... oh, I haven't said mine yet. This this was kind of a crapshoot for me. Um, as if we you just didn't cheat, yeah, yeah. If you didn't, if you didn't cheat, um, if you had to pick only performances from nineteen sixty seven, <laughs> um, this was also a nominee, like Rachel with Cassavetes. Uh, it seems weird to say it, but I went with Mildred Natwick from Barefoot in the Park. Uh, she's good. Yeah, I think, I think she's very good in it. And also, it's like in defense of 
what would have been a much better movie. Like once that really picks up, having to endure the first, say, 30, 45 minutes of that, and then you start seeing things heating up between her and the uh, neighbor of Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, right? Yeah. Jane Fonda and Robert Redford is like, oh, okay, cool. This is where this is going. It's this sort of rompy you know, midlife romance between the two of them. And then it never like really happened. The movie I know, it's, really a, it's a cliche, cliche that, to but... say it, but I wish that was the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a cliche to say Lord it. Lord, if like... that were the movie. But yeah, um, not a big fan of Estelle Parsons in Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, she's oh. maybe the more obvious choice, but uh, so went with old Mildred Natwick. We salute you. Yeah, she's good. She's great. Yeah, she's her. she's really 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 good in it. She's far and away the best part of that movie, which wouldn't take much, but. Yeah. Um. Speaking of movies that feel like plays, that movie feels like a bad play. Um, yeah. yeah. You can just, I can just, in my head, I could, I could hear the, all, like, as a, like a bit in the, in the play, they just have like the stomping on the steps just happening like constantly as people climb the stairs, but you don't actually see it. Like that felt like such like a play. Oh, for me, it was the bit. scene where they go to the Chinese restaurant and you can like see the curtain closing and that like, t- and, like a tiny table and like the wing oh, yeah. of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, was just, like, there was no attempt to make that a movie. No. Um, cool, cool, cool. Next up. Wait, what was your... Do I keep, was, you keep I... forgetting. You keep skipping <laughs> yours. <laughs> well, mine was Patty Duke, I guess. Oh, right. You, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's fair. Yeah, she's great. If we're, if we're, if we're fudging, she's not the main actress in that yeah. movie if, if, it would, if it were 2020 rules she would surely be able to be accepted yeah and i just like she's neely o'hara for god's sake she's she can get whatever neely she wants um, her audition scene is so or not audition but her like big break on the telethon is so good and i a lot a good montage movie like a lot of the yeah. kind of more artistic like all the background colors the and the way they're depicting the commercialization of stuff, like the hair product when she is the, whatever the hair product company spokeswoman is, like oh, that whole right, thing. Yeah. And, um, and also like Patty Duke, like when she's singing, it's really fucking good. She's a good singer. Like she's an amazing singer. I mean, you can singer. tell that she's talented. It's like a star is born situation. Like you can tell she's Her, talented. when she's singing in the kind of like backstage thing where she gets fired at the beginning, when she's on the telethon, at the end when she's singing um, the uh, Sharon Tate's husband's song in the sanatorium is also, I mean, that it's a, multifaceted performance so i'll go with patty duke going up to the the big the big Let's hitters in the big leagues best actor um best actor was rod steiger for, for in, the heat of the night. in the high of the night um i like sydney poitier's performance in the heat of the night more than rod steiger's 
Um, is that your pick? That's not my, I don't know if that's my pick yet. Um, and is this, maybe we could talk about in the heat of the night now. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, it's I, my that's, pick. That's my pick. Um, and to Sydney Poitier for best actor. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, that's probably mine as well. And I'll show my hand a little bit and say that I feel it very important to acknowledge the film in this structure that we've created, but I don't really find it, for me, uh, you know, a, a good fit for any other category other than this. I think, you know, when I think of In the Heat of the Night and think about what I appreciate about In the Heat of the Night, it's more or less exclusively due to Sidney Poitier. Um, the Rod Steiger contingent is, kind, I mean, on the one hand, like, confounding, but on the other hand, like, well, of course. Of course. Um, he was pretty much the consensus pick going into Oscar night. Um I'll, it was very much like sort of like a Joaquin Phoenix situation for 2019 standards. Um, people kind of got out of the way and bowed down to Rod Steiger as the heir apparent for um, for the award that year. And I don't know how much you looked into the stats, but Sidney Poitier wasn't even nominated. And he was in, yeah, I, I mean, that. three. I mean, he's in the movie that wins Best Picture. He's in the movie that is nominated for... The, for 10 Academy Awards. He it didn't get any Oscar attention, but he was in To Serve With Love that year, which was like a huge cash cow for, I think, Paramount. Also a great movie. Um, like a really fun watch. Yeah, I mean, he's in... It's problematic, but yeah. He's in three movies, all of them hugely successful, two of them hugely critically acclaimed. Uh, like they couldn't... I mean, rightfully so, like they couldn't and wouldn't set this in the South per the authenticity of the script because of how threatening it was um, to to shoot a film like this down there at the time. So, so it's somewhere in Illinois uh, is the stand-in yeah, stand for... Um, I forget the town that... There's Spartan, maybe? Spartan? Sparta. Sparta. Yeah, that's that that shot in Illinois, but they did um, almost to the you know protest of Poitiers. They shot so they could get the actual like corn or corn cotton field shots when they're going to Endicott's mansion. Um, they were actually in Tennessee for that, and it sounded like you know quite the horrifying experience. People were like stories of like pickup trucks circling the hotel they were staying in at night and like constant harassment, constant threats received simply because they were filming this section of the movie down there. Um, so, I mean, just suffice it to say, I mean, this was like the biggest, I mean, mentally, physically, the biggest, like most significant actor of the year in terms of both output and, and, and all of that. And like, he's not even nominated for, for any of the things. And I think his... We talk more about, you know, that character and, and his performance in the greater context of the film. But I would say, like, hands down, there's no better, like, more iconic, more significant um, character and performance from from '67. And, for sure. and Virgil Tibbs and you know his performance. Or his and performance I Virgil Tibbs. I really enjoyed the movie itself. It's Same, kind yeah. of in a, in a way that 
it's kind of just a procedural it's uh yeah. like very well done like just a kind of like a murder mystery and like a cop procedural with a pretty well thought out like racial backdrop um and just like it's a classic movie trope of like Rod Steiger characters and Sidney Poitier's characters. There's this constant back and forth of at any given point in the movie, either one of them could be trying to get Sidney Poitier to leave and the other person could be wanting him to stay like that, that back and forth, that that kind of seesaw of, of whether Sidney Poitier is trying to stay because he wants to finish this case or he wants to leave and Rod Steiger's character needs him to stay because pressures from the mayor and from the wife of the man who was killed. Um, it, it, it's a good, especially compared to a lot of these movies, it's a good length and moved, moved along at a, at a clip. Um, it started off maybe a little slow, but was more just kind of, I felt it was just deliberate. And um, I mean, I wasn't exactly loved the the way the actual like reveal of who killed her, uh, the dude and why. I mean, it's kind of like a just a senseless like a like an accidental murder kind of thing. Like he didn't mm-hmm. mean to do it, rather than any sort of uh, plot by Endicott. Um, a cat plot, but it really did and it i did not realize that they had to they had to film it makes sense film outside of the of the deep south in order to do this but it really captured like the the tense and just overall um i can't think of the word um the tension of, of for like a black man to just be physically That's be exactly what in I was thinking. A, a town like that um i don't know if you describe it it's, it's probably worse than a sundown town um which were, i guess was more common in the north but anyway um kind of the cars constantly traveling him getting run down by the truck with those white guys and getting cornered and in the in the kind of whatever um building that was um yeah and also i think, I think ca- oh, sorry, sorry one more thing and also i think captured and obviously I, I don't, i'm not speaking of this with any sort of experience um captured in a more subtle way and more benevolent way the dichotomy of of a black man who's obviously more successful and is coming from a North town and from a different kind of, um, a different, like just coming from the North where obviously there's racism, but in, in a different sense, when he, when he is forced to stay at the, um, at the, the, like the auto, like the, the auto repair, worker. the auto workers family and that kind of dichotomy compared to the, Sidney Poitier and the um, 
housemaid slash cook and guess who's coming to dinner who's like vehemently opposed to his position in society um there's still that recognition of difference but it's 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 kind of a, a, a laughing at his predicament kind of thing um in in uh in the heat of the night um and i just think like above all else it's just like it's a very watchable movie yeah absolutely yeah i think the sort of element of racism that i think is so interesting in that um that it explores so well is like you never know like for him he never knows who he's going to be interacting with really no matter how the interaction goes and what he does if he's going to see that person again under much more horrible circumstances you know it's and like i just you know that idea of like everyone he's interacting with you were he you can tell he's worried that like maybe yes that interaction will end but they might come back you know what i mean um and you don't know how they'll come back or who they'll tell to do what when they come back um and that tension yeah you're right like just just to be there and like even when he's not being assaulted he's worried that he's going to be talking to somebody who will then come back later and assault him. You know, it's it, the reality of, you know, like the death of Emmett Till and things like that are very clear in that movie. Um, and I, I kept waiting for it to be like a little from, but from that race standpoint, I kept waiting for it to be like a little bit more than it was. And it just wasn't. I was looking with like the, 2020 lenses. At least, at least, you know, through my eyes. Um, I was, I mean, impressed isn't the right word, but, you know, living through these last few years where, you know, we've become pretty good as, well, I guess as like a film Twitter. <laughs> um, uh, taking to task, like the hidden figures, the green books, uh, the help, all those type of like, you know, very white created, um, but nevertheless, like critically celebrated and award ceremony celebrated movies. And I guess I haven't seen any of those movies now that I think about it, but, but watching a, a over 50 year old movie in the heat of the night, I was impressed by how more, or how it seemed to authentically, like Sam was saying, um, convey some of these experiences, despite still being, you know, like white producer, white director, white screenwriter. Um, but at the same time, and I don't want to, I mean, it's not the best thing that I ever saw. And I, it feels weird erasing that from, from history with, with my picks here, but you know, knowing what I know about it, it seemed like very much the narrative, the contextual narrative was like, this was a Rod Steiger vehicle and we're all getting behind Steiger because he gave the best performance of the year. And what we want to linger on is the final shot of like them parting and Steiger realizing that like, we're really all the same. And he has a new friend now and he's like smiling as Tibbs leaves the train station. Um, like that was the big, like, that was the beat in one of the Oscar montages. Um, 
when, and this was, and I, I didn't realize this at first either. So this, the, the Oscar ceremony was um, very shortly after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I think it was the last time an Oscar ceremony was postponed um, because if it would have been on its original date, King still would have been lying in state. And then they only delayed it like two days. But, I, but, but anyway, I mean, there was, you know, obviously um, a lot of tension in the room and tone deafness through what a lot of people and presenters said throughout the ceremony. And there was one beat in the ceremony where, you know, they were kind of like tiptoeing around, like acknowledging Dr. King. And then they like played the montage and it was like the big, you know, um, crescendo was like Rod Steiger learning that like black people are people too. It's more like they gave him the award because he took the part and that the part was written. Like it's, it's it's like uh, they gave him the award because they want they want to, that that kind of white person to to be celebrated in a weird way, you know. Like, like I just didn't think that it was that interesting of a performance. Period. I mean, um, for sure. I mean, and I know that this happens all the time now. Still, I mean, like you know, obviously, like Green Book is like such a classic example. But I do think it is to project somewhat modern sensibilities. It would be like, as if, you know, Remember the Titans was like getting Oscar buzz and Will Patton was the obvious choice, you know? When like, like, like you know what I mean? It's, it's like, yeah. it's, it's shocking to me. Like, it's and not- it's, it's one of those things Denzel's too where- yeah, if, if Kevin Sydney Costner Fox. was the only person getting Oscar buzz for, for Hidden Figures. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, exactly. I don't know. I mean, to me, like the Will Patton, like role in Remember the Titans is the one that like most closely, you know, just like a lot. It's practically exactly that, you know, counterpart. But that is so bonkers to me. And it, but, but people are still fascinated by that character. I mean, you could say that my obsession with Catherine Hepburn and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is like another way of being fascinated by that character for a white person. Um, you know, it's just a little less obvious, uh, but just a different shade of it. But yeah, Sydney Partey is in that movie. Who's next? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I also wanted to just mention he's not my favorite. Um, who? Dustin Hoffman was really good in The Graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned some things. He's a little, I, I mean, part of it is like, it's hard to tell whether it's not great acting or if it's just a very socially inept character. Um, I think it's the latter. Um, anyway, uh, so all of ours was Sidney Poitier for best actor in In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. Best actress. And Bancroft. One, um, best actress was Catherine Hepburn for Catherine Hepburn coming to dinner. Yeah, for guess who's coming to dinner. Um, I moved things around. My nominee or my winner, I should say, is Catherine Deneuve and La Belle du Jour. That's what that's what mine is as well. Look at us. <laughs> I have an honorable mention as well. It's Faye Dunaway. 
but let's yeah. talk to Nev. Let's talk to Nev. Um, the fact that she is 20 in Two. that, 22, is so mind-boggling to me because she handles that movie with such... She has to hit so many really difficult beats. Like, I mean, that script is, like, not easy. She has to be all over the place um, and, like, somehow still feel like it's the same person and not feel like things are just mm -hmm. happening to her. Like, she doesn't have much to say, and a lot of things do just happen to her, but she makes some very critical decisions in her life. Like, she, she decides to go to certain places. And I just love how the, you know... You never forget that like in like you never forget her level of agency in any of these things even though like the insane thing happens to her husband and like that and she gets involved with this bonkers dude and like she gets involved with that other bonkers dude like there's still like the sight of her as like an agent um in her own life is still so there and i feel like that's all performance because i just don't think that a movie like that in like less capable hands would just make it seem like she was just such a damsel and it'd be so have such cognitive dissonance. Cause it'd be like, yeah, but it's a damsel who like decides to be a prostitute. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but like, because she is just such a force in her performance and you can just always tell when she's thinking um, and always like tell when her gears are turning uh, like it just, it works that she, I don't know. I just, I love that performance for that reason. Yeah, I'm not sure how much uh, how much I can really add. Uh, you say it very well. Uh, I can't. We some one. I think it was Sam was talking about a different actor's performance earlier today, and about like their facial work. I mean, obviously, I mean her face tells or does so much of the uh, work for her throughout the film, and she's got such. I mean, gravitas is like such a like sort of like loaded cliched word but i mean she really does i mean she is just i mean obviously from a narrative standpoint she is that film center of gravity um but between like the meta textual level where she's 22 um i read a few accounts about her i mean I hate to say, I was going to say, I am saying naturally, I hate to say naturally, but like naturally not being treated very well. Um, during, I mean, Boonwell had to, I mean, Boonwell was directing since the twenties. So he was, I mean, he had to be in like his sixties or seventies, um, you know, directing uh, and like you have this 22 year old ingenue and apparently um like they weren't very forthright with like how much she'd be exposing herself and how much they would be, you know, how much of that footage she'd be using. And I, I just, I think when you have, you know, like a man who's that powerful and, and that old relative to this, this 22 year old actress who like it read was just sort of just like, I mean, I hate to say pimped out, but I, I, she was dating uh, Francois Truffaut at the time, another like famous asshole a la Jean-Luc Godard. And he's sort of just like, you know, placed her in, you know, metaphorically placed her in Boonwell's arms and was like, here, you will do this. And, you know, this is your, this is your star actress. I mean, so, but she's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's helpful for me to think of this as a Catherine Deneuve movie, yes. not a Louis Boonwell movie, despite, I mean, if you separate the, like the work from the artist, 
I do kind of rise up and cheer for a lot of the great directorial work in the movie, but I sleep at night by regarding it as uh, not only a Catherine Deneuve movie, but an extremely iconic, powerful, um, like fantastic Catherine Deneuve movie. I want to. I think another point for the Catherine Deneuve movie is that so many of the male performances are really bad. Like she, she's not up against. I would say the other, the only other like actor performance of note is that of the, um, the madam. Yeah, she's good. But the men in that movie. She was almost my best supporting, just because the men in that movie suck. You know, I think that like, and it's they they aren't well cast, and that's Louis Boonwell's fault. They aren't well directed, and that's Louis Boonwell's fault. And somehow she manages. It's it's a testament to her power as an actress. I would say you can almost say that they don't seem like they suck as much because she's so she makes them look so good. I don't hate the husband. I mean, he's he doesn't do much, but I feel like that's kind of the point. He's kind right. of right. I was I was going to say how much of this is intentional. Like the husband, I think plays like a great vapid, like bourgeoisie pig, you know. Um, and I forget the actor's name who plays like the sleaze bag who you're just like sitting there the whole time being like, Oh no, like I know where this is going. And like, and again, it's like, is that, is that intentional or that you just like revolt him and, or yeah, I guess like bad. Yeah. So if it's intentional, that's actually like to Louis Boonwell's credit because he knows that Catherine Deneuve can hold up these ridiculous men. And if it's not intentional, I mean, either way, it's either way it's to Catherine Deneuve's credit. Yeah. Either Louis Boonwell is aware of how terrible they can be because she's so good, or she just happens to be so good. But yeah, I mean, there are no other compelling perform- male performances in that movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Shout out to Anne Bancroft. Um, yeah. Who, I she, mean, I, she's I, really no one's good. trying to take her Oscar away from her. I'm not trying to rip it out of her arms. She's really good, um, but also it's just like a very well written part, um, and and I think her performance is it maybe more so than a lot of the other performances we're talking about a symptom of a well made plot, you know, like she does well in it, but it is like the character who is kind of looking to kind of control and boss around Dustin Hoffman's character because she has so little control in her life. And, and as soon as she kind of opens up and as soon as he kind of pulls away and obviously like hugely um, detests her daughter because she represents the kind of beauty that she is, feels like she's losing and any mention of Dustin Hoffman possibly being with like that's like the the worst thing in the world for her anyway uh her temperament turns on such a dime in that scene where he kind of forces her to open up and she and and realizes why she is so against him dating her daughter like her kind of going from this cool calm collected person to kind of very controlling more obviously controlling i should say and angry um it's such an important scene yeah Um, i might be talking about this later but my favorite part of that movie is how her presence remains so strong in that movie even when she visually and like auditorily drops out like the moment where like like she 
is there as a manipulator for the rest of the movie, but you are not seeing her nearly as much. And like ever, like, I don't think you actually see her again until just that last wedding scene. I've, I think that you that's- see her, uh, I think as he's driving past the house and she exerts that presence over her daughter that one time. Yeah. But it's, it's so brilliant. I think it's so brilliant. Yeah. Similar to Deneuve, she had to stand up to, or had to endure uh, just like a lot of disgusting, productional, uh, piggishness, you know, misogyny. Um, apparently, there, there's like an anecdote about how Nichols encouraged uh, Hoffman to ad-lib groping her. It, like there's that scene where he really like awkwardly cups her breast and it's just like a thing that happens. Um, but her face is suck. And that was because they were, um, Nichols and Hoffman had this weird, like on again, off again, like actor director relationship where he was, where Nichols was often trying to get inside Hoffman's head and like harassing Hoffman. And it was this like self-hating kind of thing where Nichols like realized that he's like, oh, like Hoffman is me. And I have all of these like conflicted feelings about it. Um, but anyways, he was like, yeah, Dustin, like what was like, when was the first time you got some action? And he was like, well, like I made out with this uh, like cast member in middle school um, when we were like in the same production of like something or other. And he's like, yeah, okay, use that. Just grab Anne's breast. And that was that. And it's, pretty fucking gross and disgusting and really and again not knowing what we know now about dustin hoffman it's just like uh, yeah i, don't know. I watched the graduate much differently yeah these yeah, days yeah. so okay yeah. i mean i for this category i go with uh katherine hepburn because i'm kept keeping her here for best actress rather than best supporting um, Ouch! Sibling rival. Oh. I feel like I'm on sibling rivalry. <laughs> Good one. Well, I originally was gonna break more from the restraints put because I did look at uh, who, what people, what people were nominated for in real life, and I was like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But I guess I'll go along with it. So, um, yeah, Audrey Hepburn, also. Just like super charming and two for the road. She's nominated for the wrong movie. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I guess I haven't seen, but she, there's no way that she could have been better in the whatever the other fuck movie that was than two for the road. Um, Wait until dark. Yeah. Director. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh. I can Director. just see like oh. she was. Oh, sorry. No, it's all good. It's just funny that Rachel and I like did the both said the exact same thing at the exact same time, more or less, and had the exact same reaction to. <laughs> uh, we don't have to go into two for the road at this point. Um, best director. That's what you think. <laughs> best director, Stanley Don at two for the road. Did you freeze? Him? I might switch mine. I had Mike Nichols, but then Andy told me all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the real the 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 IRL winner of this is is Mike Nichols for the graduate. Um along a similar line, the sleaze in me would like 
hardline Louis Bunuel for Belle de Jour, but it uh, doesn't feel great. Yeah, I know. I um, feel like I'm going to switch. <laughs> he was neck and neck already for me with um, with Stanley Donnan for, for Two for the Road, which is like one of the biggest like movie mysteries to me ever how this isn't like one of the most I know like well-known regard I mean from from so many angles like it's an odd it's starring like perhaps the most iconic actress ever in a well, good this is role. a theme of like underrated Audrey Hepburn movies like this yeah. keeps happening uh, like it's starring or it's starring it's directed by and. the most like one of the most beloved mid-century directors like the director of singing in the rain like the like picture in the dictionary when you look up like Hollywood. Um, but yeah, what were, you, what were you saying, Sam? And it's not like her counterpart didn't go on to do anything. Uh, right. I don't know Scrooge. if he wasn't famous at the time. He had been in um, um, Tom Jones. And obviously I don't like the person that he portrays in the movie, but I consider definitely like that's a real person. Um, his character. Um, yeah, I think being able to pilot, um, you know, that that film like that with all its technical, and he's a big technician. All those locations. But yeah, all the, yeah. Um, being able to pilot a, a script like that is so impressive and it's so well done. I mean, it's just, it is so good. And he has such like a, if you... Um, I would highly recommend, so Mark Harris, again, the, the author of Pictures at a Revolution. Um, so he wrote Pictures at a Revolution in 07, and then 10 years later, the 50th anniversary of 67, um, he wrote a bunch of columns for basically like every other 67 movie you um, could think of that was noteworthy for some reason, yet not in the best picture category. Um, and I mean, he talks about two for the road in his two for the road column a lot better than I can, but there's some, um, there's like a pretty heartwarming uh, Stanley Donning quote where he's, you know, speaking of the movie and its timeline says something like, Oh, like my idea was that um, like, no matter like when or where it was, like it was always the present and like our like relationships or romantic relationships. There's like always like a part of them with us or something like that. And although the movie is like kind of like disorienting and it's always going back and forth, like the idea to me being Stanley Donnan was that I always thought it was, you know, we were always showing the present and that was like sort of my compass for, for directing that movie. And I mean, oh, it's just so good. It, it doesn't yeah, seem like I'm, that many other people have seen that movie, but I think Noah Baumbach certainly has. Yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, and Richard Linklater, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's so... For yeah, sure. Yeah. I've such actually a great seen more Linklater of, in it yeah, than... Yeah. I feel like if Linklater had to do a... Uh, yeah, I'm glad like, you mentioned that. I would have forgot, but I wanted to talk a about A before that. movie, um, like, to make it one movie. Like, if you could, if you had to splice all the befores into one movie, that's what Two for the Road would be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 It's okay. So here's, I was going to say Mike Nichols, but then you said that Mike Nichols is a trash person and I'm not going to say Mike Nichols anymore. I'm going to say two for the road. Um, and I'm going to say, say Stanley Donnan. Um, and I think, yeah, as an achievement in um, like editing it, you know, cause you have all of these different timelines that are sort of coalescing um, and it still moves very well. I think that, that that's like a very hard to achieve thing. And like, 
you don't really see that happening that much and the look of it is so perfect and the cars are so gorgeous and um the performances are so good uh yeah and the marriage storyness like jumps out so hard and it's so funny that like i feel like everyone when they're watching marriage story like it sort of seemed like people thought that that was the first time any of that had ever been done but it's like this is the exact same thing it's just that they don't end up in a fiery divorce yeah and it's so what makes me so I guess, confident in my decision. I mean, this is all kind of trifling stuff anyways, but what makes me feel good about my choice is that it's still pretty consummately a 1967 movie for a number of, for a number of ways. I like that it obviously unwittingly is very much in dialogue with, uh, we talked about this, but in dialogue with Weekend. You know, they're two, mm-hmm. um, you know, French <laughs> road movies. Yeah. Um, and just on a personal level, it's like, well, the one that, I, you know, couldn't stand is like the mirror image of the one that I'm just like totally floored over. And it's, you know, we talked about Linklater and it's that, um, I don't know if it was on here where I've said this before, but it's, it's, I, I'm always reminded of that, like the, you know, being like a high, having a high concept for um, like some technical thing, like with boyhood, it's like, well, what if we, you know, shot it every year for however many years? And I always think of that Mitch Hedberg joke um, about like the the conception of double tree hotels where they sat in the boardroom and they're all like, so what do we call this thing? Tree? And they said, no, fuck that double tree. <laughs> and it's just like, what, like, what do you think about your romance movie? Like, should they be on the road? It's like, no, fuck that. They're always on the road. They're on the road the entire time. Um, so that's just sort of like, not necessarily ballsy, but like that cool conceptualization. It's like, you like road romance movies? So like, here is a romance movie and they're on the road um, the entire time. So that's sort of like, not proto, but one of the earliest examples I can think of where it, the technical aspect plays a big role in um, the story and, and one's appreciation or my appreciation of it. Yeah. Um, at least. It also very much captured for me the uh is it the Dostoevsky quote happy families are all the happy in the same way but unhappy families are all unhappy in different and interesting ways I think that's like the beginning of some book or other that kind of very much echoed that for me especially when they were with the other couple um yeah yeah. my one criticism of the movie is I feel like it kind of really rushes the end, like her affair and that yeah. whole thing. I think, but also rush like his on one affair. Hand, like I want he the had movie an to be affair, over. right? Oh it's yeah, long. yeah. When he like veers that way and yeah, exactly. Like the f- affairs at the end and sort of the way that those dissolve and then come back together. I don't know. That's like my one thing, and that's not a directorial thing. It's just like kind of odd, and I like, yeah. can't get over. I really want to watch it again. Nothing was really made of his affair. And a lot was made of hers, but at the same time, the movie made a lot of hers, but he didn't necessarily. No, it was was kind of an odd last last quarter of it. Except I like the party scene a lot. Um, Yeah, Yeah, the party scene's really good. uh, Reminded me, I I think I was watching it every single time, but the party scene in Sex and the City when... Ship Shipley? When Carrie sees that, that Mr. Big is with another woman, he comes back from France. Anyway, 
That might not be Chip's. I think I'm still going to go with Mike Nichols. Taking me back to AP class. I mean, I really did not consume this movie at all the first time I watched it. Like, I was just looking at it. Um, This is by far the movie I had the most notes on of just, like, Hmm. interesting things that were happening. Yeah. That kind of, like, got my creative juices going the most in a way. And that might have just been the headspace I was in the most. But, like... It was interesting. So, like, that guy at the very beginning when he's mentioning, like, possible jobs to Dustin Hoffman's no. character is talking about plastics. plastics. Yeah. And I was, like, especially in that for initial part of the movie, it looks very plastic. Like, the plants, oh, yeah. the plants How don't shiny seem real. Dustin Hoffman is. Yeah. Everything's shiny. <laughs> Everything is kind of cheap and kitschy. Maybe not cheap, but kind of kitschy looking and, and false. Number 42. Yes. Sorry, I was gonna say, number 42 on AFI, 100 years, 100 quotes. Plastics. Plastics. Hey, yeah. AFI really likes the quote plastics Jesus. from the great yes. um, <laughs> What else? Um, and that also kind of goes with these sort of disjointed, um, I, I'm picturing like Barbie and Ken doll hands right now hmm. of the of the affair, you know, the, 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 breast cup and the yeah. trying to seduce me there's just something about it that's very like awkward and, like these dolls Justin are not Hoffman, supposed to yeah just like, hitting Hoffman's your dolls together in, in general was kind of like that like he just doesn't know how to act and but uh, until like, the act, act but towards sorry, the act. end he does yeah he doesn't know what to do like he's just he seems so lost and it's obviously a very suburban movie like but once no you're on like the college campus, it feels very different. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, there's reading the obviously reading the book, there's you know, one one fifth of it is all about the graduate and apparently a lot was left on the cutting room floor in reference to Nichols and screenwriter Buck Henry's vision of it like really being a send up to like the artificiality and the veneer of like really affluent life in Southern California, which I don't know, watching it this time and and reading what their real vision was, didn't, it didn't really quite land for me. I think there's a lot more that could be, um, could be done with it. And I love the part you're just, that's kind of my favorite part of the movie. Like he gets in, they have the party, like anytime they're like really exploring, at least like the imagery, that suburban imagery and whatnot, that's really the best part for me. It just kind of, once he's at like the zoo and up at Berkeley. Um, yeah, although kinda, one thing I, I did, and this might be because I've seen the movie before and I've, I know the ending, but it's tragic that he actually does seem to have a connection with Catherine Ross's character and that they have chemi- like they actually have chemistry. And that's like, it is in a way you are hoping that they don't like each other just for the sake of their relationship because it's just there's no way that it can be smooth um yeah i think the sorry we keep interrupting you sam that's all um no i was gonna say my biggest hesitation and kind of like bringing together what andy says is i feel like so a lot is made of of course over the last shot of that movie right 
of like, oh my God, they made such a mistake, blah, 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 blah. And to me, that last shot would be so much more effective if the sort of class element was more explored. Because when they run away, it's not that they realize, like, it's not an effective shot unless you realize the significance of what they're running away from. You know what I mean? These are two people who have their lives basically entirely set up for them based on the class structure that they are in. And by running away from that, they are running away from that. And they realize that they are in that car. They're not realizing something about their relationship because they do kind of like each other. I mean, like they seem like they'd be good together. And it's also not like they have to get married now. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like they're just together. But they're realizing that they are individually nothing without that structure. And they have nothing without that structure, without, you know, basically being like, oh, of course you went to Stanford. Oh, of course you went to, where did he go, Princeton? Williams. Um, Williams, like, you know, of course, like, they're, they are nothing without that. And by running away with that, they, they are nothing. Like, it's like, where would you be without all the privilege that you have? And to me, that doesn't quite land. And what that's been interpreted as for so long, it's like, oh, they're just so rash. They made a really hurried decision but they haven't like committed to anything. Like they're not married. Like she just decided to leave her person. I, I don't know. I feel like that is such like a, obviously everyone calls it like such an iconic shot. But if you really think about like what that shot is trying to do, the movie hasn't really earned it. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I think it is, it's partially that. It's partially, I think it is partially the rashness but I think it's also just like... But what are they committing it's to? It's the awkwardness. It's like it's like a first date. Like, they really don't know each other that well. But again, and, what and, are they committing it, it, to? <laughs> no, I'm not even saying it's a commitment thing. It's just like, it's a camera lingering on two people who, I mean, obviously have just run away from a wedding and and are running away from their families which is what you're talking about and and what all in that entails but it's also like about like two people that are like just out of college and and especially the guy who's just kind of like an awkward person and it just lingers long enough to capture the 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 the, the adrenaline leave yeah it's very style over not style over substance, but it's very, it's like, it's impressionistic. It's, I don't think it's yeah. necessarily supposed to be realistic the way that it's framed and this, the speed with which the sort of air is taken out of their expressions and whatnot. Yeah, I guess, yes, I see what you mean. But like, at the end of the day, like at the, the last shot of that, he looks miserable. So he has to look miserable for a reason. And I genuinely was wondering, like, why, what, Miss, what Mike Nichols was telling Dustin Hoffman, like, this is why you're miserable right now, you know? And I think he's miserable because he spent the entire movie feeling like he had nothing or, like, no purpose, but also not really realizing that he was completely, you know, there's all these pool scenes. He's floating on top of all of that's been given to him that he doesn't even realize. Anyway. Right, right. I mean, we, we pick up with him with his current malaise after he had just obtained this big achievement, graduate yes. valedictorian at Williams. And, and we follow him as he's trying to 
I, I guess, possess Catherine Ross and he, you know, perhaps achieves that. And now he, it's like the cycle starting over again, perhaps. I don't know. Interesting. That's I'll say watching it, uh, watching it this time to, to prepare for this, not even trying like overtly to be like, well, I know I can't walk away liking Dustin Hoffman, et cetera. Um, I felt most gassed up as a result of, of all the Simon and Garfunkelness of it. Like I was oh grooving God. off of that the most. Like mm. for That's me, it's almost so like lit. a Simon and Garfunkel movie above all else. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it's just so good. And, um, maybe you'd call it revolutionary in the context, but something that hasn't really come up or as just like a slight thing. It's like movies really weren't or movies didn't use like previously established, especially pop music um, before the graduate. Like you wouldn't have, like you mentioned like the, the Dr. Doolittle soundtrack from 1998 earlier on the episode rate. Like that wasn't like a thing yet. And like the graduate, it's sort of just like, pretty classic film school 101 stuff but um you know before the graduate or graduate was the first and like you can make movies now with like a, a pastiche soundtrack of like various pop songs throughout history or you can have music recorded expressly for the movie that you're yeah. making yeah um, i also think that the simon and garfunkel plays such a critical role in there because it's kind of like saying like don't worry we're we're cool you know, it's a movie about rich people living rich people, like mm. upper class lives. There's nothing really revolutionary politically that's being discussed at all. There's nothing, you know what I mean? It's an extremely, like theoretically very square movie until the end. And the fact that it's Simon and Garfunkel music, you know, like a folk rock band, you know, which you know, at the time is like not super, you know, whatever it's not pop music really. It's like, it's a, like, don't, it's like, it's like coding the movie as like a, we're cool. Like we're alt, you know, they were a hard the movie sell, doesn't seem like that yet. Apparently it was hard to get them or it was hard to sell them to the, the uppers. It was hard to sell them on being a part of like an established, you know, like, would it mean that we're selling out then? Like we're Simon and Garfunkel. Would people just think we're sellouts if we're now like in this, like, just, you know, and a very commercial thing, like a big, and it wasn't, the graduate wasn't a big Hollywood movie. It was an art house movie that people were worried about whether or not it would actually like have any legs. But um, I mean, obviously they were in it, uh, you know, they agreed to it eventually. And there's some funny, uh, you know, just some funny trivia, like, um, I think it's pretty well known that like, obviously they didn't write the song, Mrs. Robinson for the movie. They were working. He, Simon was working on a song called, you know, insert three syllable name. <laughs> um, and the placeholder at the time was Mrs. Roosevelt. That's why it has things like Joe DiMaggio in it. And they didn't, it was, they're very under the gun. They didn't finish it in time. That's why parts of it are just deep. Because they didn't have enough, they literally didn't have enough time to like finish another verse because they Nichols needed it so quickly for the movie. But that's funny. But yeah, since Mrs. Robinson, a <laughs> <Cuckoo -cuchance> <laughs> of the, uh, the thing, yeah, they could. It just you know, it went in like that. Um, um, that's so funny. Yeah, I think that that's a really the music, and that's very interesting. Like, 
Yeah. Um, not sorry, this is going to go long, but like as a diversion, <laughs> um, a music as uh, from my childhood, the sort of obvious ripoff of all this is the stupid movie Garden State. And it's the opposite, like the the way that the shins work in that. They talk about the shins, the characters listen to the shins. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Imagine, like, yeah, yeah, I know you. Yeah, <laughs> and this these characters wouldn't be listening to Simon and Garfunkel, and that's kind of the point. You know, it, it, it creates a dissonance from what you're seeing to what it's like, it's kind of like a directorial voice of like, I get it. I'm not one of these people. I'm one of you people. I'm one of the you that like Simon and Garfunkel. As opposed, you know, and I think that that's really, really effective. It's like, well, yeah. Elaine, I wanted to talk to you about Simon and Garfunkel. Well, and it also is effective in that it it lives on, like Simon and it 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 could easily Simon and Garfunkel could have kind of turned into a music that only stuck up suburban people listen to, but it's been preserved as kind of a hippie yeah. kind of. And it almost like foretells the Catherine, like Catherine Ross is the only character in there that would have been listening to Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, yeah. So it like tells you that the movie is on her side. You know, I just think that that is very smart. Not to give Mike Nichols too much credit. Um, I don't want to step on Pitch Me, but I'm just saying remake The Graduate with a scene where the Benjamin Braddock character is like in his own world on his iPad or on his iPod and like shares an earbud with, oh, with Elaine, with Elaine Fuck. Robinson, and they like he's like, hey, like hey, these are these are Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> these are Simon and they like slow dance. I hate it. Oh, I hate <laughs> it so much. Okay, Anyways, let's keep Sam. moving. Uh, next and obviously most important category. What is the best thing you ever saw? From nineteen sixty, aka best picture, aka. In this in this scenario, best picture. Although, yeah, sure. Should we draw our straws? Andy, I think you should just go first. Okay. I mean, we won't have to I talk actually, very long. I actually, I actually do know what I'm going to say now. So, uh, we basically just had too. the conversation. The best thing I ever saw is two for the road. Me too. For the road. We just, we need to find for the trilogy, for the next, every episode, we just need to find the random Audrey Hepburn movie. <laughs> I know. It's like too cliche. Hey, I'm waiting for our Sabrina episode, man. Oh, God, I love her so much. <laughs> um, yeah, not much more that I'll say. I want to highlight to steal more of Mark Harris. You know, he can say it better than I can. I just, I love the way that he, he concludes his, his, his column from a couple years ago about the movie. Um, where he says, um, the final sentence of it, he talks, you know, he says, you know, he talks about the movie being both tender and wounding, um, which is a lot like love and a lot like life. And I don't know, I thought that that was very, um, very apt and just really, like really wraps up my feelings about, um, about it and we talked about marriage story in the previous category and i guess you could kind of say that about marriage story but in like a way that leaves me a lot less satisfied like to some extent i guess oh, or it, it, it seems sure. like that is what um 
Noah Bomback would want someone to walk away feeling like, oh, like that was both wounding and tender. Um, but it, it seems much more appropriate, uh, or at least like the ratio, the tender to wounding ratio in, in Two for the Road is uh, much it's more much, to my taste. Much better captured in, in, in classic movies like uh, Crazy Stupid Love, you know? Yes. Hey, I, I'm down for crazy stupid love. Um, I, here's my thought about two for the road. I actually am going to draw it in comparison to Bonnie and Clyde. Um, yeah. As this movie that in 1967, the best of a 1967 movie is combining the sort of intimacy that we're going to see in the seventies with the kind of fantastical epicness that we've seen before, you know, if that's the point of revolution, uh, which I think Bonnie and Clyde gets a lot of credit for. Um, you know, that it's like ultimately a story of these two people and they're whatever, but there's just kind of a, a lot of like stuff around it that's fun. Um, that uh, Two for the Road does it better, you know, in a more iconic way. The cars are great. The clothes are great. The set pieces are great. But it also had, it's like held together in this very intimate way. Like the realism uh, too. There's yeah, like, and there's like a realism, realism to it. Yes. So it's like that, like that crossroads of like it's not marriage story marriage story wants you to be like oh these are normal people like like you know what i mean like and like savor the normalness of it and these the movie producers that. and off-broadway yes, directors are, are, are normal just, are, are just like you you know like that's just an absurd thing to say this is like no of course you're watching a movie you want them to be beautiful you want them to be wearing epic clothes you want them to be driving epic cars you want them to be rich unexplicably except for when they were poor when they're still gorgeous you know like it has all of that like old hollywood sort of romance but and but a more modern um internality is that a word? Like internal life and intimacy to the characters. So that's why I think it is the perfect 1967 movie and the best movie I ever saw. And it would kick Bonnie and Clyde's ass. Like it is like, it is the better version of Bonnie and Clyde in my opinion. Boom. What's I'll say, that's a movie I, I, once I finished the book, really grew an appreciation for. Didn't really find a way to highlight it here for me. Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I've never really- We'll talk about, we can talk about it more in the, uh, in the- Oh sure, yeah. Um, yeah. And the pitch me, we'll, yeah. we'll cover some movies that we miss. Yeah, but yeah. I'll say the the Harris book made me appreciate it a lot more. I find it to be kind of a tough sit, but I like what it represents. Yeah. Sammy. Sam, what's your pick? So my pick, I don't know if it's the best picture, but my pick. Is in the heat of the night. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. I, I thought you were gonna yeah, say, "Guess who's going to dinner?" <laughs> oh gosh. No, I found in the heat of the night was by far, by far, the most kind of like pulled in I felt by a movie. I'm definitely on this list, and just in general, it's just like a very well built plot. Mm. True fact. And obviously I love mysteries, so I'm a little biased and kind of like in that. But it the the characters and the tensions were also well weighted. Um and Sidney Poitier does such a good job of going from 
his scenes with Rod Steiger to like, I, I loved his scene where he's kind of playing the, the guy they caught running away who they originally thought had murdered the guy when he kind of, I don't know if, I forget if he acts like a like another criminal, but someone who gets put into the the cell with him. And originally oh, that yeah, guy's yeah. like, I don't want to be in the cell with you. Like, what are you doing? And like, just like sweet talks him and kind of cons him into telling him all this shit. And those scenes, basically any scene where Sidney Poitier has to go back to the cells, I think he gets, it's like shows his excitement, his like, his like, I'm on the case being propelled by that, I think is such a, like one of the best like detectives I've seen. Like it's very Sherlock Holmesy, um, and 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 you have to believe that because otherwise, you're not going to believe that he would want to stay there and risk his life. You have to believe that this is guy who's, like, made to be like he is his his like life is being pushed by his interest in solving things. Like that's his. He's he's like sure like he's like driven by that. So, and. I was a little disappointed by the ending and and who actually did the killing, but the, but in terms of like that final scene outside of the um, the the kind of corner store where he uh, was getting record of the abortion that the um, young woman was going to get that scene outside of that where he kind of uses the the brothers. Um, animosity towards um the 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 cat like the cashier dude as a way to distract like that that's such a like that scene is built on a knife edge yeah um and i had like i i actually like stopped the movie and watched that multiple times because it was just like i was so i was so into the moment I could, I wasn't even listening that well uh, and like misheard things. Um, But yeah, that's why I just, I just was like so into that movie while watching it. It was in my top three. I, at any given moment, these last few months working on the project, uh, two for the road was my was my pick. Belle du Jour was my pick, and the Heat of the Night was my pick. Down to like last night, it was one of those three were swirling around. I just for love me, two for the road. So I never much. Oh like the gosh. second I saw two for the road, I was like, well, I could do that done. <laughs> <laughs> like sick of forking me, and like I was trying to convince myself that I was being just like unclassy, you know. But I just love movies like that. I love them so much. Okay, next. That was good. Burning questions. EQs. The best 1960s type of movie you ever saw, the best movie on this list. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is, is kind of, I mean, I like, <laughs> tradition is I, important, so we needed to have the question, but, but go ahead. Sam. I don't know if mine is the best movie on this list. I what think movie probably do you think is? There are multiple movies that are like better, like objective movies than my movie. I think Belle de Jour is probably a better movie. I think Tooth of Road mm. is probably a better movie. I think The Graduate might even be a, I don't know. There are issues with, I think it was just that I'm sucked in by like, a, I recognize that I can get sucked in by like a murder mystery. Um, 
so it is my so yeah. well in the heat of the night is my favorite procedural murder mysteries are what movies. are what banter is are to you or what banter is to me although i love or you what, know like, i love banter too oh just like get two beautiful people talking at each <laughs> other and i can't not um so yeah i don't necessarily think two in the heat of the night is the, the is the best movie on this list i, I think it, i think two for the road is the best movie on this list same z's Number two for burning rat questions. <laughs> Can you speak rhinoceros? Yeah, Sorry, I've been wondering. I, yeah. Can I you know. speak rhinoceros? Yeah, can, can any of you speak rhinoceros? That Not movie well. is so bad. Oh my God, that movie is so bad. It leads right into... Yes, of course, Sicus. Is Dr. Doolittle the worst movie you've ever seen? I don't know. I wasn't conscious for a lot of it. I, uh, resisting the... <laughs> investment and in thinking too hard about it i i think i want to say yes i mean I, i'm hard pressed to really think of it i mean if the for me the metric is if i had to watch it again i don't know if there's a movie out there that i would want to watch again less it is certainly oh, the worst best picture goodness. nominee i've ever seen is it brutal that's it's true. certainly the worst oscar movie i've ever seen i don't know if i think I felt bad about so myself rough. while watching the bank job. Oh, the bank job me. is a thousand percent more yeah. fun than Dr. Doolittle. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's up there. It's definitely up there. But yeah, that's because I didn't like the music at all. <laughs> oh, the music was so bad. And that's usually what can save a bad movie musical, but it's so bad. It all sounds the exact same. It's like dumbass hms pinafore to me there's nothing just no stronger argument for the tyranny of white men than when you hear the stories of getting of of the original cast of my fair lady convincing rex harrison like to sing he's so nervous about it they have to like in, invent talk singing for him you know what i mean and so he can and he can barely you know he's like um, whole hot mess about it. And then however many years later, he's like, I must sing the whole yeah. time <laughs> in this terrible movie. Like, uh, yeah. you know, that, is, to, that I, is it. We, that is it. We've that is talked the enough about Dr. Doolittle. We don't need to give it more airtime. <laughs> I, I feel good about that last point that I made, though. <laughs> Question three. Are you Neely O'Hara? Yes. We, I'm Neely O'Hara. I'm Neely O'Hara. I'm Neely O'Hara. <laughs> uh, but I didn't yeah. move the bodies. <laughs> a legend. Shut up, Petty Duke. Such a legend. Who's Marcel? Okay, so we have an adjustment of pitch me this time. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Rachel, you skipped something. You're careening, what? Rachel. I have three wait. more questions. Wait, oh. did I not? Well, there's oh, only, there's only. Oh, because I'm looking at two of um, mine are in pen. I'm, sorry, I'm looking at the. Um, I'm looking at my copy that I made last night. You added some since last night. I have a live one. There, yeah. There's one. One. Yeah. Oh, and then I have sorry, two. Sorry, I was looking at the old copy. Yeah, the first one, as Sam was saying, is how much does Marcel remind you of Sam? <laughs> Who's Marcel? Marcel is like the creep gangster with the metal teeth Zero. from Belle de Jour. Zero. Zero. <laughs> well, fuck you. Zero. 
No, it's mostly a nod to Rachel. I jokingly throughout the second half of that movie when he appears kept saying like, man, like he reminds me so much of Sam. <laughs> All in jest. He, he I don't actually, appreciate he, being a little inside joke between you two. Um, he actually very, us. <laughs> very much reminds me of someone I used to work with who I will not name, but yeah. So anyway, Doc's dad ass. No, <laughs> they just look similar. <laughs> Doc's dad ass. Well, it's funny too. There's someone that I, I mean, I have the same um, response too. He does that actor playing him looks a hell of a lot like somebody I worked with, and it's very I jarring. Mean, <laughs> it's very I don't jarring. know. It reminds me a lot of people. It looks like a lot of people I went to middle school with who did not shower a lot. Yeah, it just looks. <laughs> Not great. What are, okay, your, what are two? your two? Well, it's mostly serious one. We kind of touched on it, and I asked you it off, um, off the record a few months ago on the topic of uh, as you being the expert in the house, um, the Mel Brooks house. Um, is you only live twice a good James Bond movie? That is <laughs> such a rough question. Um, no. Oh, wow. Because I've seen well, maybe half of the Connery ones. Certainly don't, can't so really remember. Many. Mid, it's mid-tier, it's mid-tier Connery. Um, but that's largely because Thunderball and Thunderball's so bad. Um, and that came right before it, right? I believe so. And I yeah. mean, when he's really old and Diamonds Are Forever, it's kind of hard to rate them next to each other. There are very good parts of it. I think the spaceship eating another spaceship is so peak Bond. It's so <laughs> terrifying. It's so good. It's so I love that. I love that so much. I love that, like, in the setting of, like, Shit that could go wrong in space, that that's the best they could think of. Oh, it's amazing. I love that shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like the whole, or the Orientalism of it is worse than yeah. a lot of- It's so bad. It's so bad. Um, his makeup to make him look supposed Sorry, to be Japanese- Sorry, with a weird accent. Is pretty terrible. I mean, but also like, you, I think you do have to give it credit for being the basis of a lot of Austin Powers stuff. Oh, right. It, it is more yeah. of the Austin Powers. It's like all of it. It might be the single if most influential Bond movie. If you mix together that with the original Italian job, you get Austin Powers. Yeah. Like it's, those are the two things that I think are the most Austin Powers-y. Like the, the, the lair in, in, in a volcano... Um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty awesome, right? That's like peak Bond, right? I even think the the spaceship eating the other spaceship. I cannot believe oh, that Austin yeah. Powers didn't do a thing with well, that. Well, there's the spaceship phallic. Stuff. It is, but that's the whole that's the whole end of one of the Powers movies. Is the it is. is it? Which the, the is it cuts, the second one? I don't. We're saying, hey, doesn't that one. look like a? And it, it's oh, cuts to, yes. to euphemisms for penis. I do remember that. I didn't. I didn't draw that connection. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, and and I don't know. And the thing is, I don't know if this movie of if you only live twice being the basis for the Austin powers makes it a good plus a good 
James it Bond does. movie or a bad James Bond it movie. Does. But outside that, of but, or go but ahead. for that reason, Skyfall should be the worst James Bond movie. Because it's the it's most... one metric of what makes a good Bond, okay, a okay. Bond movie. It is one metric. It is not the metric. I, I it's I find it hard to rate to rate this on the on the Bond because so much of the Japan stuff is really bad. It's um, really bad. Are there other early Bond movies? that with layers that layery like in a volcano <laughs> with a piranha pit like with a trap door with a missile launch system like well i mean dr no has the like under the ocean with the with the actually oh, really? pretty cool like magnifying glass that. wall that looks on it looks into the aquarium and makes all the fish look bigger but it looks less hokey it does oh it does completely um, to me, this is the hokiest Bond movie I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, that's because you haven't watched that many uh, Grandma Bond movies. Yeah, just compared Live to... And like, die. Live I've and let die. I've seen Goldfinger, I've hokey. seen Dr. No, and it just looks like the Broccoli Estate was like, you had to be a tough year that year. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess they don't I fund mean, it. But From Russia with mean. Love might be my favorite of the Conneries. Um, and it's the op- it's very not hokey, in fact. Um, anyway, yeah, that's a hard, that's a tough question. It's a burn. I, I said no, but I could probably say yeah on another day. Sure. No, that was good. I like that. Uh, final question, sort of a this or that question, like a hot or not question, is what is the better viewing situation after the AP exam or a boys sleepover situation? <laughs> a boy sleepover for sure after the AP exam is literally the worst viewing situation um i remember some weird movie watching situations after i mean the with exam. with mrs young we watched chariots of fire african queen didn't watch african queen um it's a weird experience to be like watching a movie in school that's like not like it's like clearly like this is supposed to be fun you know and it's like we're gonna be doing this for weeks and weeks and like to be sitting there like watching a movie that you might otherwise watch on your own but like your crush is right there but also it's still school it's a weird i didn't like that it's not that fun so like most popular history books the midsection of pictures at a revolution is a series of photographs and the first one is a picture of the Bonnie and Clyde screenwriters, uh, David Newman and Robert Benton, Benton, in which they're referred to as, quote, the boys. So I guess my bonus, bonus burning question is, is this who you had a sleepover with? <laughs> the boys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did um, they think of Dirty Dozen? I, mean, I, think Joe, I think Joe had seen it many times before. He's like an old war movie kind of guy. I, 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 the boy. I, 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 meant, I meant David Newman and Robert Benton. Oh, I don't know. Like I know, I know, I watched Guns of Navarone for the first time with oh, him wow. as well. Um, <laughs> and then, where did Joe Luther live again? Do you have his somewhere address? in <laughs> Illinois? Um, <laughs> no, Daxy Saxy. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, let's move along to uh, this special and very exciting Pitch Me. 
Um, Pitch me. So. I can't speak at all to the title listed on this document. Um, but basically what we are going to do is we have. Well, PS triple We're going R. to. Fuck, Mary kill in a way with the five. The titular best. pictures at a revolution. Yeah. The titular pictures of Reg- pictures at a revolution slash best Oscar nominees, where we have to put one of them into each of the categories and that, uh, which do you most want to have a prequel for? Which one do you most want to have a sequel to? Which one do you most want to have a remake made of? Which one would you most want to have recast? And I guess not remade, but like the exact same movie, just recast. And which one would you most want a reboot made of? Um, and I guess what we talked about this and that it is, it can't, it's a, it's a little movable and that you could make the sequel now with current people. You can make the sequel then with um, those same people. No, wait, you can make the remake. You'd have to make the sequel with the same people. Um, anyway. Uh, I found this very fun. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> and partially, it was this fun because fun. I didn't, I didn't have to do that much maneuvering. Like it all just kind of fell into place for me. Yeah. And I guess I can. Uh, I'll read mine out. Your PS Triple um, R. So, oh, I guess the P. I get the PS Triple R now. Um, prequel. <laughs> uh, I did in the heat of the night. Oh wow! I'd love to see the Sydney Poitier in philadelphia like entering into the police force i want to see the city buddy not the not the sparta wherever the fuck um i'd want to see that prequel for sequel i guess i kind of went for the obvious one in that the only one that kind of ends with a cliffhanger so i said the graduate same um yeah which isn't the sequel to the graduate like um American Beauty or like, 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 like movies like that. Yeah. Like, like I feel like they've sort of already been made, but yeah, I want to yeah. see that specific family. Um, it'd be interesting if they, if you had those two and somehow Anne Brancroft was like continually trying to sabotage their marriage. <laughs> yeah. Um, or they get to back together and like, at like Anne Bancroft's funeral or something like that. Like, I think that like, that could be cool. Yeah. Um, I think it was either her. Go ahead, Sam. No, I'm done. I, I was done with that. I was gonna say I think it's either um, it was either probably Nichols or Buck Henry, um, who had some anecdote that said something like, "Oh yeah, like in the sequel, they're just going to have turned into their parents, like sort of like both acknowledging mm-hmm. the their fate and kind of like mocking the idea of like sequel culture and." Um, and there's like a famous pa- joke. Wait, in- whose parents? Would they turn into uh, Catherine Ross's character's parents? As the kind of more I guess it's open to, to interpretation. I, guess. I don't know if they were that specific. Because it, but- seemed, it seemed like Justin Hoffman's character's parents were at least seemed to still be together more to more extent than, uh, than Catherine Ross's. Um, 
for remake, uh, I'm taking this as a complete overhaul. Is Doctor Doolittle? Ditto. Uh, new music, new cast. To see if it could finally get it right. To see if it is possible to write to do a good Doctor Doolittle. I, I really think I'm thinking Robert Downey Jr. as, <laughs> as Doctor Doolittle. Uh, no, um, I did not put a thought into how I want to remake because I don't want to do that. Um, recast. Recast, I said Bonnie and Clyde. I did not love this movie. I also um, said it, but for no real reason. Just because I had a sort of a process of elimination for me. I have it as, as, as that too. I, I liked Faye Dunaway and I, and I probably... Warren Beatty was fine. I didn't love his character. The whole um, yeah, I don't know. There was just I just I I didn't find the the two of them to be that good together in in myriad ways. So I kind of just was like, why not just try? Probably I, I would leave it anyway. But also recasting it now would be fun. Um, Reboot um, seemed obvious to me as well was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, I think you and I have the same everything except for I Swap, Prequel, and Reboot. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Because um, re- I, I think Reboot of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was Get Out. Like, we got it. And I love and Get Out is amazing, so I'll choose that if that's what it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, for prequel yeah, had, or go ahead. Sorry. So I had all the same except for for prequel. I said I want the guest who's coming to dinner prequel. Like I want to see when they met. Like I want. the rom com. I want the rom com for sure. That would be so fun. So like, and I like a picture, it would be like a little bit more complicated. Like she would maybe have had a boyfriend and he would maybe have had a girlfriend on this trip. And then like, that would be sort of like the Got like, it. The conflict, you know, like it would be a little bit, obviously they make it out to be like a totally conflict free, perfect meeting. You'd have to like stir the pot a little bit, but I want to see them like together at this conference in Hawaii. I want to see him in a little bit more of what would be considered like his more comfortable environment. Like that character, like sort of like, you know, be bopping and looser. Hanging out loose, like doing his like, like world health thing. Doing his happy hour at the conference, conference happy hour. I do. I like want to see, and I do love like, you know, I love like conferences and movies. I think it's so fun. Movies that are smart about that, like that scene in up in the air when they're like sneak into the conference. Mm. Um, that's fun. So I want to see that. And then I would reboot in the heat of the night. Which they did. Yeah. It was a TV show in the 90s. Well, there I also, I, I found this out last night. There were two, <laughs> Why not? There were two sequels to it. There's a oh, movie wow. called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which is, oh, I think yeah, they, they, both, they both still have Poitier in them as Tibbs, but they're both set in San Francisco. So... Um, instead of having him like back in Philadelphia, he's in San Francisco for some reason. 
And the first one's called, they call me Mr. Tibbs. The second one is called like the operation or something like that. And the description is like Tibbs has to like fight a group of urban, so-called urban revolutionaries. I know. It's not good. I've got, um, yeah, I got, a lot, got some overlap that we've talked about. My prequel, I've got Dr. Doolittle. Um, we're just going to call it Doolittle. It's before he gets his license. Um, and the more that I think about it, maybe it's like, it's like an E.T. type story, like Iron Giant type thing, where it's just, you don't have to worry about all the animals uh, defecating everywhere. It's, there's just like a single animal. It's like the first animal he can ever uh, talk That's to. That's smart. Not having a mass of animals yeah, is yeah. smart. Um, wait, is that who, am I coming through like really choppy or is that, is that the schmoolies? I don't know. Is Sam frozen? He's kind of frozen on my screen. It might be me. Okay. I just want to make sure I wasn't doing anything wrong. That might be me. This What's is a test. Movie? Uh, we'll talk about sequel graduate kind of the to the the sort of wink wink nudge nudge of it based on that uh nickels quote or whoever it was and there's also like uh that robert altman movie the player from the early 90s with tim robbins he's pitched a sequel to the graduate and sort of like an absurd hollywood machine uh like send-up scene so i thought that was kind of cute and funny to say my sequel would be the graduate um i guess along the get out lines the remake for me, would be guess who's coming to dinner, um, but with you know black black writers, a black director, um, you know a climax that doesn't have the um, Spencer Tracy person yeah, driving the bus. Um, recast, oh okay, recast Bonnie and Clyde, starring Peter Sellers in every role, a la like the Nutty Professor, a la Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Doctor Strange. Right, that was yeah. Um, uh, and then reboot in the heat of the night, uh, kind of along the same lines of what we've talked about. That was the premise of so Walter Mirish, the producer of In the Heat of the Night, great Wisconsin grad. Um, his inception of it, this all occurring during the um, initial heyday of the Bond franchise, wanted to franchise Virgil Tibbs, and there would be a, you know illustrious long series of Virgil Tibbs movies um, in which, you know, he was, you know, they were episodic and he was, you know, doing various assignments and things like that. Um, it'd be cool to do that. You know, recast like a 20, 30 something Virgil Tibbs and you got yourself a franchise. And set it in Philadelphia for God's sake. And that's, that or I think my, it might even actually be Harlem. Be like I think the, the, I might be getting this wrong, but I'm pretty sure because these these are all based on a series of novels, um, somewhat pulpy novels. And I'm pretty sure the um, in the book he's a Harlem detective. So like mm -hmm. Harlem, Philadelphia. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't say Philadelphia, but um, either way, maybe Rhode Island. He's from Philly, he's from or, Philly in the in the movie. Yeah. In the movie, though. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he's a Philly police officer. Uh, yeah. Or Philly. Love it. Did we miss anything? Huh. 
I don't think so. I don't think so. Not that we need Great to talk app. about. Great so app. I have an extra one more question. Or any question. Like, do, at the end of watching all of these, do you agree that 1967, with like the central thesis of the book, that 1967 was like this important of a year? I, I haven't seen enough movies before and after to make that sort of judgment. I do, and at least when you're talking about Oscars. Like, I think it's very clear in Oscar world. In fact, 1969, there's actually, like, it goes back. Like, 1969 movies kind of go back to, like, the pre-1968 Oscars, you know? But, yes, it does seem like it is a harbinger of things to come, at least for Oscar lists, is what I would say. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, of course, history doesn't really work in lockstep like that. Um, you know, it's it kind of can spread out a little bit. And, obviously, because 67, 68 were such historically significant years outside of um the film industry you know, it's just easier to also you know bundle them together and, and look to the art that was being made at the time For sure. um it's kind of a shame that hollywood is kind of shut down right now and because it'd be obviously um you know it'd be interested to i'd be interested to see you know the the films that come out of 2020 but it's uh that doesn't really seem to be a thing that is happening at the at the moment so but at least we I got think to perhaps five a months. longer a longer in incubation period will be beneficial i think we'll have like a renaissance of amazing movies in like two or three years that's my thesis here's hoping here's hoping we'll talk about next uh next step next step next well homework uh I'm homework. so excited. Give me my homework. Guys, we're doing trilogies. Trilogies? So we are discussing them as threes, but also in individuals. A quintilogy sort of, of trilogies. A quintilogy of trilogies. So trilogy here's quintilogy. the trilogy list. And it's going to be easy to ramble off. So we got The Godfather. One, two, three. One, two, three. We got Lord of the Rings. One, two, three. Uh-uh. Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King. Star we got Wars the original four, five, Star Wars trilogy. So Star Wars 4, 5, 6. We got the before movies. Before sunset, before sunrise, before midnight. Turn those things, turn those first two around, flip them and reverse them. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> and we got... The Christopher Nolan. Batman. Batman the Christopher Nolan Batman. Batman, Batman begins, begins. Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. So we chose these based on movies that were like, that are kind of self-contained trilogies. Like they need to have, obviously Star Wars has movies, prequel and sequel trilogies, but like they need to kind of be self-contained. We couldn't do like the first three Harry Potter movies. We couldn't do like the first three Parrots of the Caribbean movies. Not that we would want to. One and two is good. Oh, um, the, what fun two is <laughs> until we can, octopus face um yeah um we're really jazzed about this we're really jazzed we I've might seen have seen all of these movies before i think no sam's not seen the befores or the godfathers i was gonna godfather. say this might oh. it's it's i'll try not to make it just of a godfather podcast but this might have to be like this might be our first multiple recording sessions. I don't know. 
this could be really long. Well, I mean, I could talk about Lord of the Rings forever. So. Right, I, mean, I could talk about The Godfather forever. So we'll. <laughs> and I'd we'll, kill them both if they we'll did play. either of those things. So. <laughs> so. And and, and be to be yeah, and yeah. I and I I really enjoy, to be honest, all of the those Batman movies, yeah, but especially sure. the first two. Yeah. Um, See, I especially enjoy the third one. Oh yeah. See our first podcast for Andy. Going real uh, nuts on. Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, so that that'll be coming into your ears, hopefully sooner rather than later. I think this is going to be a quicker quicker watch, at least for me, for sure. Um, Got three down already. Fifteen yeah, movies. Yeah, we did three already. Um, I've seen some of them so many times. I don't need to rewatch them, but I yeah, will this is the first time with no rewatches for me. I think I'm the only one who can say that. Not like um, no rewatches but... or no first watches. First with no rewatch, or first with no first watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the um, first with all rewatches. I only had one rewatch and I only half watched it. So or I, only, clear, I only had one first watch. And I only half watched it. So. Not on me. Watch it. <laughs> it was that one. <laughs> we are watching the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings movies. The Coppola restorations of <laughs> the Godfather movies. And I am rolling my eyes. Yeah. There you go. Good up. Play it, Sam.